Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, Chad Brugman continues the teaching series, The Road to Christmas, with a message titled, First Impressions. It's good to be with you guys, as always. Uh, I said this in the first service, and I'm going to say it again. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. Anytime I get to get up here and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe this with every fiber of my being. It is the best news on planet Earth, and here's why. I have tasted and seen. It's not some ethereal thing for me. I have tasted and seen the goodness of God in my life, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all my own brokenness, in the midst of all the the, the stuff we humans go through. I have tasted and seen over and over and over that God is good. And so I didn't have to lie when I sang that, and I didn't have to sing it with fear, because I've sang that song before. You ever been there? You are good. You know, this morning I was like, good. But I've been there times where I'm like, you are good. You're never gonna let, you know, like, please don't let me, like, like, you ever been there before? Yeah. And some of you, you walk in here like that. And can I just tell you that it's good. It's okay. God's with you. God's got you. There's a lot of us in this room with a lot of faith this morning, and we want to share our faith with you while you'll need it, because there's going to be times where we need our faith to be shared by you. And so I'm just saying, I'm a kid in a candy shop. I need to shut up and get on with the series because we are in, I think, week two of this series that Trevor so amazingly kicked off last week called The Road uh, to Christmas. And this was a, a struggle for me to pick what I was going to talk about because I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of the Christmas narrative, but there are endless dimensions and endless angles to the implications of Christmas. There's so many different things as I was studying the last few weeks, knowing we'd be doing this series, there were so many different things that I wanted to talk about and all the narratives and all the different characters, they're so amazing, but God put this one particular angle about Christmas on my heart as it concerns Jesus and it's this, it's this idea of first impressions. This is what Advent is. This is what Christmas is. Jesus was, uh, on behalf of God, coming into this world to show us a first impression of what God is like in the flesh, right? And how, how many of you guys know, especially as you get older, how important are first impressions? They're vital. If you're a business owner or if you manage a business, you know that first impressions are vital. You don't even have to have the best product in the world. And if you have a team that knows and believes in first impressions, your business is going to do something. It's going to thrive. As I get older, and well, in fact, let, 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 me, let me let you in on some church baseball real quick, some inside the church baseball. You guys know when you pulled up and there were people in the parking lots with orange stuff on and orange stuff waving you, telling you where to park? Um, can I just tell you that their main job and the real reason they're out there isn't because you guys like need help parking? I mean, come on, you go to Target, right? You go to Walmart. Those parking lots are bigger than this parking lot, and they're crazy, and you still find a way to park, Right? So while you think they're being, uh, you know, in charge of logistics, do you know what the ultimate goal of them being out there really is? It's a first impression. Being waved at, being said hello to, being smiled at, because let me remind us, especially those of us who've been coming to a church for a long time, and you walk in here, and you're excited to be here, and it's a joy to be here, and it's not difficult to be here. Do you know every week there are people sitting throughout these seats in this room where it's really hard to come to church? And it took a lot of guts and bravery and courage for them to show up to church. There's people every week and that are going to be coming through our doors and they have church baggage. They have church trauma. There were some people that will be coming through our doors throughout the years that grew up in, in an abusive church environments. They grew up in church environments that did not lead them closer to Jesus, but made them want to run from this person, Jesus, right? That's just the reality. As a pastor, I've heard endless 
endless stories of people like this. And so when, when we come in and the, you know, the people who are serving you guys coffee, the one God ordained Christian drug that we've been given the thumbs up of by heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Th- their ultimate goal isn't to just get you high on caffeine. Their ultimate goal is to smile and say hello to you and welcome you here, right? Because first impressions are everything. I, I, I am, uh, you know, as men, we get older. Let's be honest for a minute, gentlemen. We can become curmudgeonly the older we get, like more just bothered by this planet and that next generation. How dare those dumb kids, you know, like what? Wearing their ripped jeans, all this stuff, you know, like, like we can just, and I'm at that age. I turned this Friday, I turned 48 years old and I'm starting to feel that. We have a term for it in the modern world. It's called the get off my lawn guy. You know what I'm talking about? You have the most beautiful, precious kids on your lawn playing. They're running through the neighborhood and you just go out the door because you have spent hours all week manicuring that lawn because it's the last precious piece of land that you possess, right? And you're just like, get off my lawn. And yet these are little kids that are just supposed to be like, like, and, and here's, here's where I'm getting curmudgeonly. It's at restaurants because I'm a foodie. You guys, anytime I preach here, no matter what we're talking about, I will be talking about food one way or another. I am a foodie. And so as I get older, it doesn't matter how good the food is. When I go in there, I'm looking for a good first impression. It matters to whether I'm gonna go back to that establishment or not, right? And there's this restaurant phenomenon that has taken over the globe in the last 15 or so years and they've just popped up all over the globe and this organization and company sets records year in and year out on their sales, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's Christian chicken, save chicken, Chick-fil-A. You know what I'm talking about? And listen, their chicken's amazing. I love their food. It is great food. Go to Chick-fil-A. It's Well, you can't go today because it's closed because they love Jesus more than chicken, but... But, I'm, but I wish they were open on Sundays. Anyways, another story for another way. But, but, but you know what keeps me coming back to Chick-fil-A? Because I can find good chicken other places too. You know what keeps me coming? Their service is second to none. And I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the reason they have thrived in the way that they've thrived now globally, and the trend doesn't seem to be slowing down at all, look at the drive through lanes there, right, is because they put such an emphasis on first impressions. There was a couple years ago, I was on Facebook, and you should never be on Facebook, but I was on Facebook, and I came across this video of this lady who was so blessed by the power of a first impression at Chick-fil-A. Go ahead and watch this. Let me tell you something. I don't know what military base these people trained in, but I'm not mad at them. You got four people outside with handhelds, okay, under umbrellas. You got two people outside the drive through to greet you with your food. It be ready. I was in the line 3.5 seconds. That was to order, pay, and get my food. Baby, let me tell you what kind of training they doing. They is in the military in Chick-fil-A. I'm telling you, they have some training that they're doing. And I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them. I don't understand why I go to Popeye's and I got to wait on hot chicken when all you sell is chicken. McDonald's don't ever have networking, and don't let me get started on Burger King. Okay? But Chick-fil-A be killing it. They have a military base that they train out of. I'm convinced. And I, I just appreciate the professionalism. Hello, Miss Carissa. How do you know me? Because I told the girl back there, and they communicate. Communication is the key. Fries hot. I didn't even check my bag. And if it's 
it's a mistake, then that's what I was supposed to have. That's what I'm saying. Y'all but who I feel I I'm emotional right now because who in the day we live people don't they don't they don't even like their jobs like that. But these people, they are on it. she was my sister. Just go with me everywhere. Just remind me, my, like my gratitude coach. Like, but that right there, see, that's the power of a first impression. Like, she was literally moved. She was emotional over chicken, right? And it's because of the way that she was treated. And for all the things we could talk about at Christmas, I want to look at this one dimension, this one aspect, because it says so much about the beauty and the goodness of who Jesus is, that man that we were just singing to about his goodness. And it's about the first impression that Christmas gives us. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Matthew chapter one. And it's not a traditional thing you'd expect to hear in a Christmas message, but I am certain to you that this is a Christmas message and a Christmas passage of scripture. Now, when it comes to first impressions, I studied a bit of uh, journalism in college. And one of the first things you learn about journal, it's like journalism 101 is you better come out of the gates fast and hard with whatever you're writing, depending on how many words you get. If it's an article in the newspaper and you get, you know, a thousand words, those first 200 words are going to grip the reader or they're going to make the reader quit reading the article, right? You have one paragraph, maybe two paragraphs, and it has to be hard-hitting, and it has to be provocative, and it has to get you wanting to read. If you're an author of a book, you don't even have a full first chapter, right? You go into Barnes & Noble, how many times have you done this? And to see if you want to read this book or that book, you read about, what, half of the first chapter, and it lets you know if you're in or not? Like, this is in the rules of writing. When you're writing something, the beginning has to be incredibly provocative and hard-hitting. And so we not only, in Matthew chapter 1, have the, the first words of Matthew's journalistic take on Jesus, but we also have the very first words written in the new covenant about Jesus. So no pressure, Matthew, right? I mean, he better come out of the gates swinging. He better come out of the gates hard and fast. This better be gripping. This better be provocative because so many people are going to throughout millennia open up the Bible for the first time and because they don't know any different, well, let's just start at the beginning and they're gonna turn to Matthew chapter one. And so we ask the question, all right, Matthew, then what do you got for us? Better be good, right? Power of the Holy Spirit on your writing. And you know what he comes out of the gates with? We're gonna read it right now. A genealogy. Let's read. First impression. The whole New Testament. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Let's remember her. 
Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, awesome name. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And now I want lunch. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, remember her. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, remember her. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Oh, Solomon's, uh, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, remember her. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Sorry. Sorry. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Yon. Yon, the father of Boring. Boring, the father of, please stop reading this, Chad. Please stop, right? Like, you guys know what I'm saying? To which I say, really, Matthew? Like, this is what you're gonna come out of the gates with? To open up not only your journalistic account of Jesus' life, but about the whole New Testament, you're going to give a, a, a bloodline. And he goes on, and I'm for your guys' sake and my sake of reading, I'm going to skip a, a big portion of the generations to get all the way to Jesus' bloodline because there's a whole list of, of kings that are evil and godly kings back and forth in Israel that he lists. But we'll just go down to what he was trying to get at uh, verses later, which is finally says this, Methon, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, there he is, and Joseph's the husband of, and there she is, Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, we have to understand this through some historical lenses, because in 2021 in America, a genealogy means next to nothing. Other than for entertainment's sake, you'll pay a few bucks to kind of figure out your, your family bloodline and your family tree for, for the sake of conversation and fun, right? It's no big deal. So when we are reading this, we have to be real careful because we will completely miss the beauty and the brilliance of what Matthew's doing when he chooses to come out of the gates with the genealogy, because in first century Judea, your genealogy was everything to your mix. It was everything to your life. It was like a birth certificate. It would be the equivalent for us, a social security card. It had everything to do with your social advantages or disadvantages. Unfortunately, our world's always in our brokenness had caste systems. And depending on what your family tree looked like would depend on the, the social groupings that you were kind of mixed into because of your bloodline. When there were arguments or disputes in the temple courts over land rights, guess what they would go to? The genealogy. It had everything to do with your social life. It had to do with your financial life. It had everything to do with your spiritual life. It had everything to do with a lot of people's opinion about you. And so here's what I learned years ago reading some commentary on this stuff from the theologians was that they were legally allowed, they couldn't lie on their family trees, but they were illegally allowed by the temple courts to curate. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to do, right? To curate their family trees. In other words, you couldn't lie about who's on there, but you, you could take people out. You could take people out. Wouldn't you like the, you know, the weird uncle at Thanksgiving? That guy, he's out of our life. We don't know him. Like he's not, we don't claim him, right? Like that. It was like one of those things. You could, you could Instagram back in those days your, 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 uh, your family tree. You could filter it. Like, what do we want in and what do we want out? And so here were a couple of fundamental rules about uh, the genealogies is they wouldn't put women in there. Sorry, ladies, I know that seems ludicrous, but if you think it's a man's world now, and I won't argue with you about that, you should have tried being a first century Judean woman. They were literally considered just barely above property. Do you know some of the Jewish men, literally, you can read about this online, used to pray at their uh, tables for breakfast. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, and Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman. Bless this food, amen, let's eat. <laughs> 
Think about his wife who probably made that. I, I tried that once after I read that several years ago. We're still in therapy. Like, don't do that. It's not how this thing works, right? Like, women were considered barely above property, so you didn't put women in your genealogy. That was a given. We knew that. Now, here's the deal. Because Israel spent so many decades and decades in different types of uh, captivity as slaves in Babylon and Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, they had, of course, in different families, intermarried. They had married with some Gentiles. And so always mixed into your genealogy was going to be some, some Gentiles. And that wasn't a good thing for the Jewish people back then, right? And so, of, cur- of course, you curate any Gentile out of your, your bloodline, your family tree. Of course you do. You didn't put women in. You didn't put Gentiles in. You just didn't do that. And yet we read the genealogy here and both are here. It just begs the question like, what's Matthew up to? And more importantly, through the Holy Spirit as he's writing this, what's he up to? Like what's God up to when Jesus had an opportunity probably with Matthew at some point to to curate this thing? Like let me use my holy imagination here for a minute because the Bible doesn't say that any of this happened, but we, we gotta use some common sense here. Jesus and Matthew were together almost every day for three and a half years. There's a good chance at some point Matthew was talking to him about writing a biography about Jesus. Like, hey, I'm going to, to write for the, the, the people that come after you since you keep telling us you're leaving us. I'm going to, I've taken very careful, detailed accounts of your life and I want to publish it. And, I, and I'm going I'm to start with your genealogy because Matthew was writing particularly to a Jewish group of people. Here, here's a quick lesson with the Gospels. Matthew was written for the Jews. Mark was written for the Romans. Luke was written predominantly for the Greek audience, right? He he writes it to one guy, Theophilus, is a Greek guy. He's writing to the Greek audience, and much later, decades later, John would write the gospel for the church. So when Matthew's writing to the Jews, it makes sense. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to start with the genealogy, but but man, we got some some problems in your genealogy. Remember so-and-so and and -and so-and-so? And I just picture Jesus going, leave them all in. Leave them all in. Because here's what I know about Christmas, y'all. The road to Christmas, and this genealogy just proves it to us, is paved with two fundamental things, scandal and grace. Jesus does not come in the flesh if we were not a scandalous people doing scandalous things. And Jesus did not come to accept those things. He came to save us from those things. So yes, the road to Christmas was initially paved with scandal, but it is paved over for all time ultimately by this thing that we call grace. Let let, let, let me just put it this way. Like, this is crazy. Jesus doesn't have Matthew curate the women out of this story, right? And here's what's even crazier. The women he puts in. And the women he chooses to leave out. If you're going to put the women in to make a point, put in Rachel. Put in Rebecca. Put in Sarah. Put in Elizabeth. You can read their stories. These are incredible, righteous women of God. Do you want to, let me go back and I'll remind us the first lady who was mentioned in Jesus's uh, account, his genealogy in Matthew is this, Tamar. Some of you may know who she is. Many of you won't. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of a really, really, really important guy in Israel's story. And at some point, another sermon for another day, maybe, maybe not, she has an incestuous, adulterous relationship with him, her father-in-law. And they end up having twins. And we, we read, those twins were mentioned, Perez and Zerah. Now, have you guys ever heard of Jesus 
being called. He's called many titles in the Bible. Have you ever heard him called the Lion of the tribe of Judah? This is an incredibly profound and sacred title of Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, here's what's interesting. The the father-in-law that she had an incestuous, adulterous relationship with, Judah. Yeah, it's getting weird, right? And yet Jesus is like, no, I'm the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's tomorrow. You know who's mentions next? Rahab. This, is, this one's probably the most scandalous of all because she's what I call a triple whammy when it comes to your bloodline. Because number one, she's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. Number two, she's a woman. So it's like Matthew's just like, like Jesus is like, Matthew, leave it in there. But, but, but she's, she's not just a woman. She's a, she's a Gentile. Leave it in there. But Jesus, I got one more for you. She's not just a woman or a Gentile. She's a prostitute. She's ceremonially unclean. You know what first century Jews thought about prostitutes? We can read encounters with Jesus and them in the scriptures. We knew how they were treated, how they were marginalized, how they were judged, how they were pushed away and ostracized. And and I picture Jesus again going, Matthew, I know this is hard for you. Do not curate my family tree. Do not take her out of there. I want Rahab in there. You know who was mentioned next? Ruth. Ruth is now you're going, finally. We get this amazing woman of God, right? Yes, amazing. One of my favorite narratives in all of scripture is Ruth. She is the personification of class and integrity and what true beauty looks like as a human being, right? But here's the deal. She's a Moabite. And at the time Ruth was living, the Moabites were at complete enmity with the Jews. They do not have a good history. And then Ruth would have to, because of some circumstances and tragedies, move to a foreign land. She would marry a Jewish business owner named Boaz, right? Beautiful story. And then they would have a son, and his son would be named Jesse. And then we know from the family line, Jesse would have a son, and his son would be named David, who we now call King David, who Jesus has one of his other titles called what? The son of David. And he leaves Ruth in. She's playing an integral role in Jesus being able to pave the road for him to come at Christmas. And then who's mentioned next? She doesn't even get her name mentioned. That, that's how despised this girl. This girl gets perhaps one of the worst raps in all of scripture. They just called her in the bloodline Uriah's wife. You remember that? You know who Uriah is? He's a warrior in the uh, Jewish army when King David was around. And when King David was supposed to be off at war, but he decided to stay home, he was up on his roof, was supposedly praying one night. And he looked down below his castle and saw a woman bathing on the roof. And that was Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And he beckoned her with his men to come over and they had an adulterous relationship. And out of that, they bore a son named Solomon who was also mentioned in this, right? No curating out of that stuff. Uriah's wife's in here. And you know what King David would do when he started to go into PR mode because he got her pregnant? He put Uriah, a soldier, on the front lines and in ancient war tactics, that was a death sentence. You're just giving up your life for the cause. In other words, you could legitimately accuse King David of murdering the husband of whose wife he slept with and had an adulterous affair and a child out of their wedlock and covenant. And you picture Jesus like, don't take him. I'm the son of David. Don't don't cure him. Don't curate him out of there. Don't don't curate his wife out of there. This was more David's fault than her. That's a sermon for another day, but I'll preach that sometime too. Don't curate her out. And then we finally get to who? Mary. You, I mean, no, nobody's got any problems with Mary, but, but you know what? Everyone back then would have had huge problems with her being uh, favored to be the mother who would carry Jesus, right? She's a teenage peasant girl from a town that is the butt of jokes in all the surrounding towns. 
Philip at one point, one of Jesus' disciples, is literally mocking this place called Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? Well, Jesus, Mary, she's nothing, and she gets pregnant out of wedlock. And as much as we believe now and know in the virgin birth, you think they were buying that stuff back then? You want to talk about scandal? And the whole thing is leading up to finally getting to Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. If there's one thing you cannot deny about Jesus's family tree, it is peppered with scandal. Because listen to me, the whole reason Christmas was even a necessity, the whole reason we even get to throw parties and have gifts is actually, and ironically, because we are a scandalous, broken people. And we needed to be saved from that. And so he says, while that road is currently paved with scandal and brokenness, I am going to come down there and through my innocent, shed divine blood. I'm going to repave the roads of humanity with this thing called grace and mercy. And listen, this list, if it tells us anything else, and I use this term very care, I want to be very sensitive here because I care so deeply about all my friends in the mental health industry. So when I use this term, I'm not using it therapeutically. I'm using it generically right now. But if this list, if I could characterize it as one thing, this genealogy, it's this, schizophrenic. It's just schizophrenic. In fact, one, one great theologian, he, he wrote this, and I quote, the striking characteristic of this section, Matthew 1 he's talking about, is the alternating series of godly and wicked kings that ruled Israel. The genuineness and unlikeliness of this genealogy must have stunned Matthew's readers. Jesus' ancestors were humans, with all the foibles yet potentials of everyday people. And God worked through them, this is really good news, y'all, to bring about his salvation. And then he writes this, there is in no other words, no pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. Adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles are all found in the genealogy of Jesus. And can I tell you why this is such good news? Jesus curates nothing out of his story because Jesus has zero shame in his story. From the best moments in the Garden of Eden to the most destructive moments on planet Earth, Jesus brings zero shame to the story and he comes for all of the different reasons he comes on this Christmas. He came down here to remind us that he is unashamed of his people. In fact, he is so proud to call them his children, you and I, that he's going to come here and graciously deal with his children, you and I, and no longer let all of the trappings of the scandalous nature of the human experience win out over what was originally meant to be, which was people of grace and love and kindness and healing and wholeness and mercy. That is precisely what he came here to do, was to restore and redeem us back to our original purpose and intent and to do away with shame. As I read this, I feel like this is Jesus going, I need everyone to know that I am unafraid of the human experience. And I am unashamed of those crazy humans that keep doing scandalous things and, and crazy things in their brokenness. I need them to know that even in the midst of that, they are loved. Paul put it this way, while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And can we just have a really honest moment in church? I hope this blesses you guys. I hope this calms the, the room down and calms our hearts down. I hope this brings rest to us. Listen, this is just the truth of the human experience. We are equal parts beauty 
and brokenness. It's just part of the story on this side of heaven. We were fundamentally made out of two things from God, his breath and dust. So while we are 100% divinely inspired and made in the image of God, you got to remember that the second ingredient was dust. We are frail, y'all. Paul would say in Corinthians, it's through jars of clay, dust. It's through jars of clay where God's power is on display most through us. He is unafraid of the brokenness that we are so afraid of and that we want to curate out of our stories. But listen, until you know what to do with your brokenness, your scandal, I've got it, you've got it. If we could put all the beauty and all the brokenness up on these screens from all of us in this room, we would be so blessed and inspired with the potential and the beauty that is in this room right now. I am telling we would be overwhelmed with inspiration for what is possible. But if we put all the brokenness equally up on that same screen, we would be overwhelmed in our hearts with what the human people are capable of, even good going church people, right? And we got to quit being afraid of this because you cannot be healthy and whole and redeemed when you are full of shame because shame is what causes people to curate things. Not God. Jesus curates nothing. In fact, Jesus is one of his great disciples. John would say this in his writings. He would say, if we are in the light as he is in the light, meaning he's, he's, he's complete truth. He hides from nothing. He curates nothing. Until we get to that place, he says, once you're in the light as Jesus is in the light, then you will have fellowship with others and with God. But until then, we're playing these crazy human games trying to Instagram our lives away and filter our lives out of all the bad because what what the enemy uses, listen to me please, as his chief currency in our lives to try and destroy us and to get us to play small and to get us to feel condemned and to to walk uh, hunched over with with shame. It's shame, that's his currency that he uses. You understand that? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I came to take shame. Listen, if shame had any redemptive properties or value, I would preach about it. I would talk about it. There are zero redemptive qualities and properties with shame. Let me make a balancing statement because this can be confusing. Guilt is not a bad thing. In fact, Paul would say there's a godly guilt that leads to repentance. But here's the difference. Guilt is being sorry for something you've done. Shame is being sorry for who you are. And God will allow one of those and he will have none of the other. It's okay. In fact, it's healthy to be sorry for some scandalous things you've been a part of. It leads to, it's repentance. It's a changing of your mind, going, oh, that was bad. That didn't work. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, God, and move me in the right direction. That's repentance. That can come out. There's a godly guilt. There's also an ungodly guilt. Another sermon, another day. But shame has no place in the family of God. It has no place in the family of humanity, and yet we are all such products of it if we're not careful. And that's why I wanted to talk about this this morning. I wanted to show you that Jesus is unafraid of the worst parts of who you are. I know you are. I know people around you are. We're all so scared of each other's stories. And yet, it's the one sacred thing we've been given. It's the one thing you and I all hold a PhD in right now. Your story. It takes 10,000 hours to be a a master of something. You've spent a whole lot more than 10,000 hours with yourself and your story. Nobody knows it like you. And listen, all of us have some deeply and profoundly hurtful things that have happened to us. 
And we've had some hurtful things that we've done to other people. And, and, and sure, it feels right and normal to just go, I want to compartmentalize. I want to numb those away. I want to get those out of my story. But Jesus says, you will never find redemption in curating anything about who you are. And, and what would change for a city if you knew that Jesus was unashamed of the worst parts of your story? doesn't mean he celebrates it. It doesn't mean he's endorsing it. It doesn't mean he's, he's ever happy about sinful things or broken things. But what he comes to say is, leave them in the family tree. They're mine. That prostitute, Rahab, she's mine. She's my daughter. Before she was even born, before something so traumatizing happened in her life that she was willing to sell her body as property, before she got that desperate in life to where she would sell her body as property to other men so she could survive, before that ever happened, I fearfully knit her together in, my, in her mother's womb. I am pleased with her. I love it. Rahab just wouldn't get mentioned in Matthew. She'd get mentioned in Hebrews 11. We famously call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. And there's all these dudes in there and Rahab's in there. By faith, when the spies entered her land, she invited them into her house and gave them safety. He's rewriting her story. But he doesn't get away. He calls her, in Hebrews 11, it says, Rahab the prostitute. If you're curating, you go, Rahab the hero, the shero. She invited him in, but it was just, the prostitute, don't forget that because I want every part of the story out there because as cool as it is that she hid those men and did what she did by faith, I also want everyone to know she's a broken human being. And that's where God starts getting the glory is when we start being completely unashamed of who we are. But you can't do that if you do not first know who God is and what he thinks about you. There's a professor. He's in his mid to late 80s now and so I'm not sure how much professing he does anymore, but he's a sociology professor in Philadelphia for decades, and he moonlighted as a preacher and as a, a, an author of books. His name's Dr. Tony Campolo, and he uh, got invited in the 90s to go preach at a pastor's conference in Honolulu, Hawaii, and anytime a pastor gets invited to preach in Honolulu, you just say yes. You don't even pray about it. You don't ask the Holy Spirit if this is a God thing. or You just go, yeah, I'll be there. What time, right? So he goes there suffering for Jesus, and he said it was about three o'clock in the morning in his hotel room. And because he's from Philadelphia, his body thought it was nine in the morning already. And he couldn't sleep because he's like, I was just hungry. I want my breakfast. And so he got up and he says, I probably against my better judgment, but I went out into the streets of Honolulu looking for something at 3.30 in the morning where I could eat some breakfast. And I found one spot. It was called Gus's Diner. And he said, I went into this place and no, nobody was in there. And I, I said hi to the guy at the cash register and later find out his name was Gus, the owner. And I ordered a donut and a coffee and I sat there and quietly started eating my breakfast. And he says, not long after I started eating my breakfast, a bunch of women came in and he said, and they were loud. And what they were saying was obscene. And he said, if you saw the way they were dressed, they were scant, scantily clad. I'll use an old term right there. He goes, you could quickly tell by all of these things that these weren't just any women, that these were prostitutes. He goes, you just, you just could tell real quick. And he's like, I'm a pastor. It's 3.30 in the morning. I'm speaking at a pastor's conference tomorrow to a bunch of 
men and women of God and I'm sitting in a diner at 3.30 in the morning with me and a bunch of prostitutes. This isn't a good look. He's thinking PR, right? He's like, I, I probably should curate this part of my story. I'm gonna go ahead and get out of here. And he says, I was just getting ready to take one more bite of my donut, drink a drink of my coffee and get on out of there. And something in me was compelled to stay and I just stayed there. And he said, and there were two of the prostitutes that chose to sit right by me and I started eavesdropping on their conversation. And at one point, one of the girls who we'd later know was named Agnes said to her other friend, I guess, hey, guess what? And she's like, what? And she's like, tomorrow's my birthday. And her friend goes, so, Agnes? I don't care if it's your birthday. So, what do you want? You want a birthday party? What, do you want a birthday cake or something, Agnes? Being, just being snippy with her, right? And Agnes, he heard her say this. She said, no, 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 no. I don't, I didn't mean that at all. I was just telling you it was my birthday. Jeez. So, like, why would I want a birthday party anyways? I've never had one in my life. And nobody knows her story. We don't know her story. Just like we wouldn't have known Rahab's childhood. But what kind of childhood do you live where you literally grew up and never had a birthday party your whole life? Right? But all we see now is the, the, the final outcome. She's just a prostitute, a woman of the night, a pagan, a heathen. But you start hearing things like that. You start hearing people's stories. You start to go, hmm, I bet there's something behind what brought her to that point of desperation to where she'd sell her body as property. Think about that. This is why Jesus is unafraid of our stories because he knows everything that got you to that place of scandal. He's not happy about it, but he knows what got you there. And it's usually a lot of other people's brokenness involved too. She never had a birthday, so they all eventually left. Dr. Pam Campola was getting up to leave and on the way out, he said, hey Gus, great to meet you. Hey, one quick thought. Do you know those women who are in here? Gus goes, I know them all by name. They come in here every night. He goes, every night? He goes, like clockwork. He goes, so they'll be in here tomorrow night at, around this time. He goes, 100% every night. He goes, I got an idea. You know that girl that was sitting behind me? He's like, yeah, that's Agnes. Okay, Agnes. She said tomorrow's her birthday. And I heard her say she's never had a birthday party. So, so I'm gonna ask you something crazy, but just consider, if I go, I gotta speak at some deal. I'm here on work. I gotta speak at some deal tomorrow. And then after that, tomorrow night, I'm gonna go to the store. And if you're okay with it, I'm gonna get like a bunch of posters and I'm gonna get streamers and I'm gonna get a birthday cake and some candles. And, and would it be cool if when they all come back tomorrow, like we just do a little surprise party for Agnes because she's never had a birthday before. Gus is like, I'm in, I love it. Sign me up, except you're not getting a cake. I'm making the cake, I'm the chef here. See you tomorrow night. And Dr. Campolo went to his pastor's conference, whatever, right? And I, I'm, I'm adding this to the story now. The part I'm telling about him is true. This is what I wished would have happened with all the time I've thought about this. How cool would it have been if he got up to his podium with hundreds, if not thousands of pastors in that room, men and women of God, right? And he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to tell you that at this point, I am suspending my presentation for you uh, this morning. And if you would like to hear my presentation, it will be postponed till 3.30 this morning. You can meet me at Gus's Diner in downtown Honolulu. And I will show you what it's like to be a pastor, not tell you what it's like to be a pastor. See you then if you choose to show up. How cool would that have been, right? Like a real pastor's conference there. But anyways, it goes on and he shows up that night and they set everything up and eventually all the women came in. He said there was twice as many prostitutes as there was the night before because they heard there was free food involved. So they're like there and they had Agnes's friend bring her a little late so that they would surprise her and she walked in and they just started singing, belting out happy birthday and you can imagine. And he said, I kid you not, he said, we literally had to get a chair for Agnes because she almost fainted. She was so taken back. So taken back. She didn't know what to think about it though. Her whole life dreaming as a little girl of having a, a birthday party, something that we all take for, for granted, right? 
and, and, and finally it's, it's happening and she's caught off guard and she sits down and they get done singing and eventually they're done and she's just staring at the cake and finally in the quietness, Gus goes, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles, cut the cake, we're hungry, let's eat some cake, come on, Agnes. And she looked at Gus and said, Gus, I, I, I'm so sorry, could I ask you a favor? And he's like, anything, it's your birthday. And she goes, before we eat this, could I just take this down the road for a second? I'm gonna come back, I wanna eat with you guys, I promise. But I just wanna take this birthday cake and I wanna show it to someone. And we don't know. I can only use my holy imagination to think someone special in her life. I always thought maybe as a sibling who also didn't. And maybe they share a little shack together, a little apartment together, whatever. And she's like, no, I want this to be a birthday party for my siblings or, or a friend or, or a family member, a parent, who knows? Not the point. But the point is she, she walked out. And Dr. Campolo, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm okay that there's not always a red bow tied on the end of stories. I know we love that. But this ain't Hallmark Channel today. This is church. She never came back. So we don't know what happened of Agnes. But here's what we know. Dr. Campolo said, now we've got no Agnes. The party's over. And I'm staring at a room full of me, the pastor guy, and a bunch of prostitutes. What do you do then? He goes, I just said, hey, can we pray? <laughs> and he started to pray for them. Prayed for their hearts. Prayed for their safety. Prayed for their salvation. He said he prayed that they would get out of the business, whether they wanted to hear that prayer or not. He prayed over them, and they one by one slowly started leaving. And he started cleaning up. And towards the end of the, the moment when he was cleaning up, Gus finally came over to him and said, hey, you didn't tell me you were a pastor guy. He's like, not guilty. I am. He goes, what kind of church you go to anyways? And Dr. Campolo, and I love this. I love it. I don't know how you feel, but I love this. Dr. Campolo says, just like the Holy Spirit in that moment, spoke right through me. And I said, Gus, I go to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Gus goes, no, you don't. <laughs> and here's what he said, and this breaks my heart. He goes, there's no church like that. He goes, if there was, I'd go to church. I don't go to church, but if there was, I'd go to church like that, right? Like, they had church that night. Why? There's no shame in Agnes. The world will shame her. We've been tempted to do that with people that don't look like us or think, you know, and live like us. But listen, there's no, sh Jesus didn't come to tolerate shame anymore for everyone. He came to get rid of it. I read it this morning in my own devotions, Isaiah 61, just to remind myself that I'm not up here talking crazy talk. When Jesus redeems Isaiah 61, he just keeps coming and changing everything. One of the last sentences is he will take away your shame and give you a double portion of his presence. That is the work of Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is about. So I, I, I wrap up and you guys have been so kind to listen to me for this long, but the reason I'm so passionate is because I fill the Father's heart deeply for you guys. I have this week in my my office wept. I hardly know personally any of you guys, and I have wept with God because I felt, no, I wasn't sad. I wasn't mad. You know what I was feeling? I, I, he was letting me feel some of his heart for you guys. And I started weeping because I'm like, God loves his children so much. The saved and the unsaved, the sinner and the saint, the regenerated and redeemed and the unregenerated. 
He just loves his people. And he was so disgusted with the work of the enemy in our lives and all that shame has taken from us. So tired of the curating that he had to get off of his throne in a place where there's no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. He's in such a great place and he has to leave that place, give up all of his heavenly rights to come down here and submit to the rules of this crazy, fallen, broken world. Why? So he could pronounce to us, there is no shame in who you are. Come home to me. Come home to your father. Let the blood of Jesus Christ wash over you. Yes, your story is paved with so much scandal, but I came here to once and for all permanently finish the paving where no more scandal is a part of the theme of your story, but grace is. And it is a gift. And so you qualify. Everyone in there, this room qualifies. This is who you are. And I will not back down teaching the kindness and the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You can trust this heavenly father. You can trust your creator. He is good. He wants good things for you. He is not ashamed of you. He is proud of you. He is proud of the fullness of your story. He's proud to call you son. He's proud to call you daughter. We need some childlike faith. I pray that all week, God, let childlike faith rise up in this place. We cannot come into the kingdom that God has for us unless we have the faith of a child and children just accept gifts without thinking if they've earned it or not. You think one of your kids, when you give them gifts, this is going to sit down and go, yeah, but I'm not really sure that I've had quite the year that merits a Xbox. Uh, you know, it's more of a Nintendo year, so I don't know. What do we, you know, what do we think? No, kids are just like wrapping the papers open and ripping it open and going crazy. Yeah, I got an Xbox. And you know, in a full 365-day period, they did plenty not to deserve that Xbox. They're children. This is us adults in God's economy. This is why he's like, you got to like a kid when, when they came to sit on his lap and, and, and the disciples rebuked him. He's like, no, 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 put him on my lap. And then he has a teaching moment. He says, this is the posture I need from you guys. This is the innocence and the purity I need from you guys. This is the, the, the unblemished, ungarnished trust I need from you. Just come sit on my lap. I'm not the God that keeps the little kids away because they can do nothing good for me. I'm the God that says, let the kids come. It's the only way you get into my kingdom. Some of you today have let shame curate. And curating is exhausting, is it not? Amen. I've done that game plenty. It is exhausting to try and curate your life, to try and be something you've been told you're supposed to be versus who you are. You just bring who you are to Jesus and you lay it at the cross and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And you will watch what he does in your heart time and time again. He will start to bring out that beauty and heal that brokenness. Not ignore it, not curate it, heal that brokenness. And healed brokenness is better than hidden brokenness, I promise you. That's where true rest comes, and I want that for you. I am talking so long, and you guys have been so kind. Chad, shut up. Can I just do this? I'm not gonna end all professionally and all great. Can I just end blessing you guys with a prayer? Praying a prayer of blessing over you. Would you guys stand in reverence to God? You are so loved by him today. At the expense of feeling really cliched, of course you said I'm loved by God. I'm just gonna say it and trust that the Holy Spirit's making it way more real than I'm able to say it right now. Holy Spirit, come in these moments. Heal people right now. Lift burdens off of people right now. Holy Spirit, this is your job. I can't do it. I need your help, Holy Spirit. I can't give the help right now. I need your help. But would you bless everyone in this room with your presence? Would you help us right now? in our brokenness, would you, Holy Spirit, just take away 
shame that is remaining in this room, any shame people walked in with, any condemnation that people walked in with in the name of Jesus by the power and the beauty of the Holy Spirit, would you just come and do work that only you can do? Would you give us the grace to come to you again in this Christmas season like little children? As adults, would you remind us that that is the only way we enter the kingdom? I pray, God, for every person in this room that Jesus, today, as we walk out of these doors right now, that you would bless them, God. That you would keep them in the grip of your grace. That you would cause your face to shine over every single person in this room. That you would be radically gracious to each one of us. Turn your countenance towards us, God, and may the peace that passes understanding guard all of our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it's your name we pray. And all my friends said, love and appreciate y'all. You've been listening to Chad Brugman with the message, First Impressions, which is part of the series, The Road to Christmas. Thanks for listening. 